Hey everyone, Jim here. I just want to give you a heads up that today's episode contains some frank descriptions of combat and combat-related injuries. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Hi everyone, you're listening to Conversations at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky. In June 1879, General William Tecumseh Sherman addressed the graduating class at the Michigan Military Academy. War, he famously told them, is hell. Sherman would know. He served in both the Mexican War and the American Civil War. But out of the horrors of war can come resiliency. Today we're taking a break from our regular show to bring you my conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Kudelik of the United States Marine Corps. Kudelik has served with the Marines for nearly two decades and is a veteran of both the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In March 2010, then-Captain Kudelik was leading a mission in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, when he and his company came under enemy sniper fire. The sniper's round tore through Kudelik's leg, nearly killing him. Fortunately, as a result of the training he and his fellow Marines had received, Kudelik was safely evacuated out of the engagement back to their base, where a talented team of surgeons and nurses saved his life. Thus began a long and difficult road to recovery, which included numerous surgeries back in the United States. As you'll hear, Kudelik's faith and family sustained him during these difficult times, as did a love of history, something that has fascinated him from an early age. Kudelik was awarded the Purple Heart following his injuries, joining other commendations he has won, and he is the featured speaker at this year's Purple Heart commemoration at Mount Vernon. When talking to Kudelik, I couldn't help but think of my own grandfather, Private First Class James Arthur Patrick, who was wounded in combat in Germany on March the 15th, 1945. I remember seeing his Purple Heart as a child, and the wound that merited it. And what I hope you'll take away from today's special podcast is that, as Kudelik says, we only get one chance at life, so we ought to make the most of it. Some of the soldiers you'll hear him mention never made it home, and Kudelik, who is still an active duty officer, by the way, has made it part of his life's mission to honor those who have given their last full measure of devotion. Those of us who study the wars of the past don't always have the opportunity to speak with those who serve in the wars of the present. Today's canon discussion is a reminder that, as Sherman said, war is hell, but it can also be about a fighting chance to live. I was reading your bio and noticed that, you know, when you went to the Citadel, you majored in history, um, which I find particularly interesting because if you think about a number of, of prominent military officials in recent years, um, you know, General Mattis, uh, General McMaster, but also General Patton, they, you know, were deeply well-read men who were students of history, and that sort of informed their sense of uh, their service in the military. And so, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what attracted you to history when you decided to go to the Citadel? Right. Well, that's uh, to make a, a short story. So I Make it a long one. Make it a long one. <laughs> <laughs> I moved around quite a bit as a kid, and one place I lived when I was in the first and second grade was in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, mm-hmm. next to the Stones River Battlefield. Okay. And so my father was a, a, a prolific reader of books. He's got about seven or 8,000 books himself, and I grew up reading, learning how to read, basically by reading Civil War history and American history and identifying specific battlefields based mm-hmm. off the pictures in these books. And so I was always drawn to history, and then uh, when I was in high school, my headmaster recommended I go to the Citadel. It's the only place I applied to, and I've never been in South Carolina, but I knew it was in Charleston, and obviously that's a great place to study the Civil War, somebody that enjoys the Civil War. Right. And so I went down there in 1997, uh, chose a major of history. You know, people uh, like to 
question, what's the purpose of becoming a history major, choosing that as a major? And I think there's, you could ask that to any major in today's college uh, mm-hmm. uh, curriculum. There's many intangible benefits of it. You know, you learn how to read better, write, retain information, analyze uh, the history of the world. It's all interconnected and interwoven. Uh, I had some phenomenal professors down there. One in particular, Dr. Kyle Sinisi, was a great mentor of mm-hmm. mine, uh, absolute expert on the Civil War, especially in the Civil War in Charleston. And so that kind of spurred my interest. And uh, my greatest weakness was my inability to write effectively. And I've... <laughs> that plagues us all, trust me. <laughs> I've, uh, I've worked significantly the last uh, 15, 20 years to try to prove upon that. I'm still not near where I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, uh, my love of history grew from actually from the Citadel and studying the Civil War, and it expounded upon then. I went back to the Citadel as an instructor, as a Marine officer instructor after my first tour, uh, in, two tours in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really immersed myself in the Civil War in Charleston with Dr. Sinisi, and we visited every known location of Civil War action in Charleston. Um, he and I trotted many miles together through nasty marshlands. Oh, I bet. Um, but it was also there that I first started my renewed interest of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. I went on a tour of the American Revolution in um, Charleston, something I knew nothing about because I'd studied the Civil War pretty much exclusively. Right. And then I started diving into David McCulloch books and then uh, obviously phenomenal books like David Hackett Fisher's book, both Washington Crossings and Paul Revere's Ride, mm-hmm. then R- Richard Brookheiser's book on Washington, and then it just has gone uh, skyrocketed from there in the last couple of years. Um, where I started to immerse myself in the American Revolution in, in any means possible via podcast, audiobooks, yeah. reading books. Another Citadel professor, a great friend of mine, Dr. David Preston, his book on uh, the Battle of Monongahela. Right. Really, oh, yeah. Braddock's Defeat. Braddock's yeah. Defeat, correct. Really spurred my interest as far as the young Washington, because we all too often identify Washington as the paintings when he's in his 60s and not uh-huh. as a young man. And so the more I study Washington, the more... I really believe that his youth, specifically from the ages of 16 to 24, provided him with a foundation with, mm-hmm. which allowed him to become the father of our great country. And so what, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, you, you said you started to pay attention to Washington in his youth and, you know, less the later man, as you say, you know, not the, the figure in the paintings, but the person who was on the Pennsylvania frontier, who's carrying out orders from the Virginia governor, who's ultimately getting his orders from you know, the Board of Trade and the, and the British government in that period. And so, you know, what were you, what were you finding about that era that interests you particularly? Well, I try to, you know, as a, as a Marine officer, I try to see what appeals to young men mm-hmm. because that's what I've done the last 18, 19 years is lead and interact with young men, 18 to 22 years old. So I'm always intrigued as far as um, what it takes to motivate them. And throughout the history of warfare, it's constant. The same mm-hmm. age is the same type of uh, demographic that you're going after and the, those that fight in battle. And I think it's the same with George Washington, you know, what made him so great during the American Revolution. And as I start looking backwards, I see, okay, it must have been the foundation he had, even though he had a challenging childhood moving mm-hmm. multiple times in eastern Virginia. His father died when he was 11. But then I start looking at who was his mentor, mentors because you have that pivotal period, even now in today's world, between the ages of, say, junior in high school to your first year working in the real world outside of college, who are the mentors? And you look at who mentored him, and obviously his brother Lawrence, when he moved up here to Mount Vernon for the first time at age 16, or the second time, I guess, he lived here when he was a kid for a couple years. But his brother Lawrence, William Fairfax over there at Fort Belvoir, his son George Fairfax, their first trek across, I mean, incredible, at the age of 16, walking with a group of men 
all the way over the Appalachian Mountains in the Shenandoah Valley to conduct surveying, coming back, and then at the age of 21 or 22, on the orders of the governor to walk 300 miles to Lake Erie and back to deliver a handwritten message. (laughs) I mean, that kind of independence is incredible. Um, Of course, he was called upon the next year, at which time he, or six months later, actually, when he fought at uh, the Jumanville incident and then Fort Necessity, Mm -hmm. and then a year later as one of the primary aides to General Braddock. And so all those things drew me to Washington, and without those experiences and without really, I mean, the, the the Providence that was oversaw him, I'm not quite sure this country would be the way it is without mm-hmm. those pivotal years of his youth and those that mentored him during the time. So what was it about your youth that, that led you to decide to join the United States Marines? Well, that's a great question. I don't come from a family of uh, military veterans. My father, who uh, grew, who grew up in a farm in the middle of Kansas, um, in Sylvan Grove, Kansas, actually, in mm-hmm. the middle of nowhere, uh, he, fought in the Navy. He, was, he, was, uh, he fought in the Navy during World War II. And my other grandfather was in the Air Force as a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. But I was a uh, junior in high school, and the, uh, I lived in Wichita, Kansas, and the commander of the Air Force Base there, McConnell Air Force Base, came to my church. General Henderson actually went to church there, and he delivered a short speech on Memorial Day when I was a junior in high school. And, you know, there was there's certain times in your life where you know without a doubt that you're being called to do something. Mm-hmm. And I knew at that point that the Lord wanted me to be going to the military, and so I you know, my, my headmaster at school, I told him that, and he said, you should go to the Citadel in Charleston. And I went to Charleston, and there's an active duty contingent of Marines that attend there. Uh, they're called Marine Enlist in the, in the Marine Enlisted Commissioning Program. And I immediately said I wanted to be like those guys because they were very physically fit, very intelligent, hardworking, and they were also very nice and provided great mentorship. And so I pursued my commission through that route at the Citadel, and I'm very good friends with many of those um, Marines to this day. And, and what, at what age were you commissioned? I was oh, I went to the Citadel on my 18th birthday. So my dad dropped me off in Charleston, <laughs> South Carolina. I was on my 18th birthday, and um, I was commissioned when I was 20, uh, 21. And we, we commissioned second lieutenant. Is that or? second lieutenant in the Marine Corps? Correct. Mm-hmm. And then you go to uh, the basic school in Quantico, Quantico, not too far from here. Not though. too far from here. And so, then what was your what was your career trajectory after that? Uh, so you know, it, we we reported the basic school in May of two thousand and one. Of course, nine eleven occurred a couple months later. Sure. And then I got to, so that spawned the first four years of my uh, Marine Corps career, mm-hmm. with two deployments to Iraq, um, and then it went from there. Mm-hmm. And what was your, if I may ask, what was your experience in Iraq like? And what, you know, what, what kinds of things were you doing there? And, and what was your interaction with the people like? Right. So as a young man, I was 20. So the first deployment I had, we had very, we only had a month in Iraq, in Mosul, Iraq, um, before we rotated out of there. Mm-hmm. But uh, so the first time I saw combat was 15 April 2003. And so I was, I guess that'd make me 23 years old. 23. I had a platoon of about 40 Marines. And um, it was a relatively minor engagement, but at the same time, you're exposed to it for the first time. And the next deployment back, we went to, I was a, 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 what they call a mobile assault platoon commander. I had about 42 Marines and sailors in my company, Mm -hmm. in my platoon. Uh, we had eight vehicles, lots of heavy machine guns, medium machine guns, tows, and rockets. And it, it, the ability to cover a lot of terrain and to do a lot of things with our weapon systems. So we covered thousands of miles in um, western Iraq, Al Anbar province. And then in, in late October, we got called to Fallujah and I spent an mm-hmm. entire month with my platoon in Fallujah. And in our particular battalion, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, uh, we had 
uh, we suffered a lot of casualties during that uh, deployment. We had 19 killed, mm-hmm. many of whom were very good friends of mine. Um, and we had over 225 wounded during the Battle of Fallujah. And so I was 24 years old and really got exposed on a daily basis to, to uh, the reality of warfare and the reality of the immense burden of leading human beings in combat, especially in an urban combat like that. Sure. And dealing with uh, casualties on a daily basis. You know, when you're dealing with 225 plus casualties, and very many of them very traumatic, it's, uh, there's a lot of life lessons that you learn very quickly at a young age. And fortunately, we had a phenomenal battalion surgeon by the name of uh, Richard Jaddick, mm-hmm. who, you know, he was awarded the Bronze Star with V, but in my humble opinion, having seen what he did on a daily basis and worked with him, you know, he's a man that absolutely deserves a Medal of Honor for his actions there. He saved, I think he's credited with saving about 40 pe- humans' lives during that battle. I worked with him, you know, I wow. had some medical experience. I come from a background of doctors in my family. In my, family. my uncle's a doctor, my grandfather's a doctor, my mother is a nurse. I've, been, I've enjoyed medicine, I study it. And so I tried to volunteer myself as much as possible to assist when we mm-hmm. had any casualties. We had a, a, um, a, a mass casualty on Thanksgiving Day in 2004 in the middle of Fallujah where there must have been eight to 10 Marines that were significantly wounded, traumatically wounded. So I, you know, assisted him in that, in those regards. Without his actions, we'd have lost many more um, Marines. This really is a team effort, you know. Absolutely. Whenever there's, you know, it's kind of like I'm sure anybody that's listening that works in an ER, when there's ever a traumatic incident, it's all hands on deck, as they say, and you're doing everything possible to keep people alive, Mm -hmm. stop the blood flow, control the breathing, um, comfort people as required. You know, I, and I had, during this battle, Fallujah, I had eight of my Marines wounded, a couple of them very significantly. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when they're 19 years old and you're 23 and you're responsible for their lives and you see a Marine in front of you who, just, who has just been shot five times from his, the bottom of his foot to the top of his chest. Right. And he's bleeding out at the rapid rate. Uh, you understand very quickly that what you're doing is extremely serious and mm-hmm. significant. And when you take a step back, you look at the larger picture and make sure, hey, is this really worth it? Is it really worth endangering the lives of these young men and women in these in these combat conditions? So it's kind of the things we deal with. Well, and it, what interests me about uh, about this part of our conversation is it, it reminds me of something a student once said to me, and I, and I want to I want to tie this back to your interest in history. I you know I, rem- I remember very clearly I was leading a discussion section one day on a, a course of U.S. military history and I think we were talking about the Mexican American War, and this young woman was a veteran who had just come back very recently, uh, and I think we were talking about the psychology of warfare and you know and how being in combat changes people, and she and so she was the only veteran in the room and she she stopped very quickly and said you know. You know, I appreciate this conversation, but you all have no idea what it's like uh, unless you have someone actually shooting at you. And so I'm, I'm sort of interested to hear your perspective on, on it because you, you just said, you know, you almost you said you had to grow up very quickly in, in, in those moments. And so how did your interest in history and your, in your previous experience in history sort of help prepare you for something that really you, it's difficult to prepare for? Well, absolutely. I think that the study of history, first of all, um, leaders or readers is something I like to say, mm, mm-hmm. and knowledge is power. And so really, in college, I read a lot of biographies of some of, I used to study the Civil War pretty extensively. Mm-hmm. Decisiveness is very key. Mm-hmm. Making quick decisions, ability to operate in very tense moments, not allowing 
you know, there's different people react differently to combat and seeing bloodshed. And it's, I think there's several factors contributing to that, which we can get into if you want to. I'm very fortunate. I don't say this callously, but experienced many of the things that I did. I was not really impacted negatively by by bloodshed, by Mm -hmm. seeing Marines or enemy getting shot. I was able to react in any kind of moment and uh, assist Marines or just continue to be decisive and not really worry about it or think about it. Well, I imagine a lot of your training helps you to keep your head in those moments as well. Right, absolutely. You have to be focused because if you don't, especially as the leader, if you lose focus or you start becoming hesitant or indecisive, it's going to lead to a multiple bad things, second and third order effects that will impact your people that you're leading. So it can have a cascading effect then right. you know, down, down the line. But, you know, studying history is warfare is warfare. There's been, I mean, the, the warfare we experience now is relatively benign compared to medieval warfare, compared to the Romans, you know, the Battle of Cannae. I can't even imagine the amount of bloodshed that's there. You know, the encirclement the, of the Roman army and right, the destruction of it. Right, mm-hmm. right, and just hand-to-hand combat. Even the American Civil War, I mean, you look at the combat. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about the Battle of Gettysburg. I mean, 43,000 casualties. Mm-hmm. We can't even fathom that in today's warfare, in today's... So we've... It's a relatively... It's, blo- it's a bloodless warfare that we have now. I'm not saying it's any, it's any less significant because it's still human involvement. Well, and I think what you're getting at is a major shift in how Americans think about war. You know, with the Civil War, for example, you know, that was... That was, you know, uh, you know, on the home field, right? And that was, that you know, there have been books written about this. It changed the way that Americans thought about death as a as a consequence of seeing, you know, two percent of the population killed over those four years. But now, you know, the, the majority of the conflicts we've been engaged in in recent years have been off off the continent, and so you know, we see it through TV or YouTube as opposed to experiencing that. And so, it, it, it is it your sense then that you know that we've been kind of immunized from uh, the nature of warfare in ways that previous Americans had not been? I think we've been immunized by death itself. We don't even say that somebody died anymore. We say somebody passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, if you compare it like to George Washington times, there were the mortal- and the infant mortality rate, the adult mortality rate was so high. Right. And they dealt with the death on a daily basis. I mean, look at the family of surrounding George Washington that, were, that died throughout his lifetime mm-hmm. or close friends. I mean, even... And I speak about I will speak about this at my, on the Purple Heart Day here at Mount Vernon about his first real combat was on three July, well late May eighteen or seventeen fifty three, and then really on at Fort Necessity on mm-hmm. three July. And when he talks and during that battle, he had over a hundred wounded or killed. Right. And and when he when he references it in its official in, uh, journal report on nineteen July in Williamsburg. He pretty much talks about, it as a matter of fact, that these guys died, and he specifically mentions one particular individual, which I'm studying right now, Lieutenant Peter Mercier, and mm-hmm. how he was a gallant hero and he fought valiantly, and he epit- you know, basically epitomized what the true American, or not American at the time, but service and sacrifice really means. And now in today's warfare, you know, we've de- we're definitely immune to the realities of it. And I think in my particular case, Falusa was an exception to the rule where there was. I don't know the exact number, but there's thousands mm-hmm. of casualties in a very close, right. confined area over the course of one month. And we're literally every day we were having Marines killed or wounded, and you get an opportunity to see it both. Um, you know, I've, I saw some uh, very unfortunate scenes in Fallujah. And so to me, it's all, it, it humanizes it that these, no matter if it's friendly or enemy, these are real human beings. And right. we better know darn well what we're doing is 
for a purpose and worth the cost and the investment that we're that we're doing. Yeah, that, no, I, and I appreciate you sharing that that story. Um, and and so uh, after after your deployment to Iraq, did you and the, you eventually went to Afghanistan? Correct. Did you have any time between those deployments? Right. I really felt you know I saw significant combat in my second deployment. I had led an awesome platoon in when one eight uh, with my right hand man Gun- uh, Gunnery Sergeant Russell Hill. Mm-hmm. And so I really felt that I needed to pay, I needed really to train the next generation of lieutenants. And so I went, I've applied to go back to the Citadel as a Marine officer instructor. Mm-hmm. And I was selected to go back there. And I spent three years in Charleston, um, teach coach mentoring hundreds of future second lieutenants in the Marine Corps. It's mm-hmm. one of the largest ROTC departments in the nation. And so I made it very personal. I mean, I tried to make sure that the the Marine, the future Marines that were there understood the seriousness of the, of the situation that they were about to get into because both Iraq and Afghanistan were flaring up at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I poured my heart into that. And I was fortunate enough to start a family in Charleston. So my eldest daughter was born there, uh, Emma Grace. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we tried to make effective use of our time there. My, both my wife and I got our master's degrees from the Citadel during that time. Oh, well done. Studied the Civil War with Dr. Sinisi on my, any free time I had. Um, so I thought it was important for me to, to give back of whatever little I could. And, you know, I think it was the best thing I could have done at the time. I was, in fact, I was traveling through Dallas, Texas a month ago, and I ran into one of my former students, and he pulled me aside. And he, he pulled me aside. I hadn't seen this guy for 10 years, and he thanked me for investing their lives. And that right there was, it made my year. Mm. And everything that I emotion and passion I poured into them made it worth it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, that makes it all worth it, doesn't it? You know, Absolutely. Hearing from your students that, you know, right. something, just a small thing you may have done, right? On any level, academic level, yes, exactly right. I mean, that's, but that's key. I think it's, and it's challenging for leaders or academics or teachers to look at that sometimes and realize it. But like my wife is a school, has been a school teacher, mm. Sunday school teacher at church, and Sometimes you lose focus inside of the fact that you're really having an opportunity to have a huge impact in some of these, some of their lives, their students' lives. They may, may not tell you at the time, but more than likely when they get a little older and wiser yeah. and more mature, they're going to come back and say, wow, that, that person really had a huge impact. Ten years later, you might see them in <laughs> Dallas, Texas. Right? That's right, in the middle of the airport at a barbecue place. <laughs> <laughs> what, it is a small world after all, isn't it? It is uh, an extremely small uh, world. Oh, be darn. And so you spent three years teaching at Citadel, and then uh, you were, uh, and I, and forgive me, I don't know quite know how it works. At that point, are you ordered to deploy again, or is that something that you can make a choice? Uh, so I left the Citadel. I went to uh, my career, my uh, required military education up in Quantico, mm-hmm. and then I went to, I was a company commander, a weapons company commander at a battalion at Camp Lejeune. And that was at the peak of the war in Afghanistan, you know, 100, 110 plus thousand troops in Afghanistan when this, everything was this, flaring up. This is during the surge? Correct, 2009, 2010 time frame. So I deployed there in October of 2009 with a company of about 250 Marines, and um, we were we were spread out over multiple locations. And then kind of on 4 January, we infiltrated a, a new area of operation. Um, mm-hmm. And it was an awesome mission, an awesome mission. Um, 4 January in southern Afghanistan, 100, about 150 Marines and about a 75 to 100 Afghan soldiers that were partnered with us. We infiltrated from about uh, 10 kilometers out in the middle of the desert into this green zone, and it was perfect condition. So it was in the 30s, believe it or not, oh. and it was sleeting for part of it, huh. and it was very windy. 
Um, so all those elements combined allowed us to infiltrate unheard, unseen. Um, mm-hmm. And I was actually that patrol was led by a by a typical Marine, a 19 year old guy by the name of uh, of Brian Hillard, and um, we infiltrated this area and we st- we stayed there for the next uh, six months. Initially. We caught him totally by surprise, so there was no there was no um, reaction to, to, toward us. But within three weeks, we started uh, receiving significant enemy contact throughout mm-hmm. the course of the day and night. We were our job was to to, to uh, help protect the populace, uh, take care of each other, help other innocent civilians, yeah. other Marines. We did a very good job of it. But after about a month, we started encountering very significant uh, firefights. You got some pushback. Got a lot of pushback. I mean, uh, so it started really. Really in late February is when it really took off. I, we Daily firefights, and it seemed like they had unlimited amounts of ammunition. Many of the firefights we were in were actually much larger than what we had in Fallujah because there was. it seemed like the enemy had unlimited amounts of uh, machine gun bullets. And so very op- unlike Fallujah, it was very broad and open. So we would encounter enemy from 300 to 500 meters mm-hmm. away. So it's very challenging to maneuver upon them. There's canals everywhere ditches, you get a very great appreciation for how terrain impacts warfare. And so, Certainly. So when I think about that, I think about the face of battle by John Keegan. He goes into great detail in all of his chapters oh, about yeah, yeah. the importance of simple things like dirt and water and mud, like at Agincourt. You know, mm-hmm. f- huge impact. It's the same in today's warfare. When you're trying to patrol 10 kilometers through ditches and mud, it's ex- we're wearing 110 pounds of gear it's extremely challenging. Right, right. Yeah, and, and speaking of the face, but I mean, something the Macedonians certainly learned during the campaigns through Afghanistan thousands of years ago as well, um, all up through you know the 1980s and the Soviet invasion, and then certainly right. uh, U.S. engagements there in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, at some point, you you are injured. Right. Uh, so. Really, we started taking heavy contact in late February. On 21 February uh, 2010, I had lost, uh, for the first time in my multiple deployments, I had some Marines, Marines underneath my charge killed in combat, mm-hmm. uh, Lance Corporal Eric Ward and Lance Corporal Adam Peake. Uh, so we suffered a couple more casualties after that, wounded, and then so on. I was actually injured on 5 March 2010. We uh, conducted a nighttime infiltration south as several kilometers and surrounded whatever enemy positions and they had in the area and they had zero clue we were there so i had about 150 people marines heavily armored marines mm-hmm. deep in the enemy's space i took over a small compound about six o'clock as the sun came up and we waited there till about 10 30 at which point the enemy was moving about pretty freely in several different pockets their typical course of action was to move north engage us retreat back south they just didn't know we were in the area right now mm-hmm. And so we started getting pretty significant combat about 10 o'clock in the morning. And, um, you know, it's, I don't say this crassly, but it's very exhilarating to utilize your full capability against enemy forces who have no idea that you're there. Right. And so Marines are trained to do this. And, you know, we got to a rolling gun battle, running, sprinting. I mean, it's total exhaustion. Yeah. In my particular element, I had a good headquarters element that we trained. We patrolled every single day. They were with me everywhere, and we were, you know, although, you know, rank is, I have my own opinions on rank in the military, but so the guys in my headquarters element, it was a corpsman, an HM2 tie, mm-hmm. uh, first Sergeant Charles Williams from Alabama, and Sergeant Garrett Baker, and us and myself, and the five of us, along with maybe a couple other Marines, 
we would we would go out as many patrols as possible, dismounted, and help facilitate the patrols of the many squads I had in my company. Sure. So we were highly trained, and we got into a nice gunfight. And um, about ten minutes in, about in one, we get we went to a compound in the middle of the field and started getting significant contact, which is no no big deal. We had enough to to fight back, but then we started taking for the first time significant sniper fire, and this was the first time during this deployment where we had received sniper fire, significant, accurate, well, well, it was obviously coming from a well-trained sniper. And I'd heard this many times in Fallujah. We had a lot of counter sniper fire. Uh, several of my friends who were killed in Fallujah were snipers. I knew exactly what it sounded like and it's not good. I mean, going against a highly trained sniper is not something that you desire. So they were shooting yeah. for one of my Marines in front of me. He was about 10 yards in front of me in the kneeling, and I was screaming at him to get down. He, he couldn't hear me because the sound. Right. Uh, combat is extremely loud. I imagine it was loud during George Washington's time, and it's, it's even louder now, and it's something that you're not – most movies yeah. do not give you a good appreciation for. Right, with the smoke and confusion of battle, right? That, you know, right, it's almost, a real thing. It just messes with your sentences completely. Right. Yeah. And as I told uh, one of the staff here, you know, one of the things I initially remember going back a few steps in Fallujah was that the first major, major contact we got into, we were dismounted walking 1,600 meters in the heart of the city, is that there's no music in the background playing during combat scene, during real combat. <laughs> right, yeah. So if you look at any kind of war movie, yeah. there's always that music in the background, you know, Blast the Mohicans, The Patriot. It's not the case. Yeah, there's no symphony orchestra behind No, you. that's yeah. right. So it was the same in this particular battle. So they fired three times, and the fourth shot, they missed his head, and, and my I was exposed, my, missed my head and my lower leg. Everything else was behind a wall. And so this high-velocity bullet coming from a Druganoff sniper rifle slammed in the inside of my right leg. Wow. Um, it caused an open compound fracture in my tibia. Mm-hmm. It severed two or three arteries in my lower leg. It uh, took out half of my calf muscle. Um, it took my leg and about it took, and nine centimeters of my tibial nerve. Took my leg and spun it around 180 degrees backwards and kind of upside down. Jeez. Um, so I hit the ground. All from a single bullet. Single bullet. One bullet. And I've seen many Marines get shot before. And in fact, I had one guy get shot the week before this happened. He got mm-hmm. shot in the arm. It went through and through. And he, he, I was talking to him in conversational tone five minutes after it happened. So when I was shot, I, I immediately rocketed backward, laid to the ground, I dug my uh, Kevlar in the ground because the pain was incredible. And the first thing I remembered was, why is this hurting so bad? Because this is unbelievable, uncontrollable pain. Of course, the next thing I thought about was my my wife back home, my pregnant wife back home with our third daughter, and my two young... My two young daughters that I left at home as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And then fortunately, I had a well-trained group of guys around me. I mean, First Sergeant Williams turned my leg back around, HM2 tie, took my leg and gave a tourniquet, high, a high tourniquet. There was blood everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Sergeant Garrett Baker from Stillwater, Oklahoma, my radio operator, immediately got on the radio without being told, taking the initiative, and redirected some uh, medevac helos that were inbound for somebody else that were less significantly wounded. And, you know, my first sergeant, just like you see in the movies, Charles Williams, he's a, he's a 260-pound behemoth <laughs> of a man from Alabama, one of my great friends. Yeah. 
he threw me on his back and he says, I got you, sir. And literally, so I'm weighing, we did the math. I had lunch with him a couple months ago. We did the math and I probably weighed about 175 pounds. Plus I had about a hundred pounds of gear plus ammunition. I probably weighed 300 pounds. Yeah. And he threw me on his back like a rag doll in the middle of a heavy firefight and literally carried me 75 yards across an open area while we were heavily engaged. And, um, you know, I'll never forget these the helicopters. I don't know who it was. I mean, I'd love to thank the pilots that came in a very hot LZ. And First Sergeant Williams laid me down like a baby in the middle of an LZ. Yeah. And he, he said, sir, I got you. You know, we're both Christians. Let me pray for you. She prayed for me in the LZ. I'm losing consciousness at this point. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Because of blood loss. And then they eventually got me back to the aid station within a matter of minutes. And really, it's miraculous what the Lord, how the Lord took care of me and yeah. this, the series of events that allowed my life to be saved during that time frame. Yeah, and, it, you know, certainly as we talked before, it's all about teamwork. I mean, you, you wouldn't be here without your your team. A hundred percent. I mean, combat is, I mean, these individual heroes that write books about their own exploits in combat are a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all about a team of 18 to 22-year-old human beings who you have to teach, coach, and mentor, and motivate to do the right thing mm-hmm. very, in extremely tense circumstances. And man, I had a great team around me. I'd be, I would be absolutely be dead this today without yeah. Charles Williams, Doc Ty, Garrett Baker, and their actions that day. And then, you know, I can get into the the life saving surgery that they that they performed on me in the initial surgery. If you want me to, sure. And so I imagine you'd have surgery on uh, back on base, and then probably back here in the states as well. Right. So two of my two of my arteries were severed, and um, you know, I got back to the aid station. They carried me inside. They stripped my clothes off my body, and I was laying there naked. And there was two, there was must have been eight to ten nurses and doctors around me, and I distinctly remember I'm still conscious, and I'm in a lot of pain. My mouth is very dry, and there's two female nurses on either side of me, and I'm grabbing their arms very tightly because I'm extreme pain. Right. And the doctor uh, says, I do not like what I see here. And he knocked me out with something and I was under for the next four, several, four hours or so. Mm -hmm. And I woke up and he was literally sitting on my table and he was screaming at me saying, you need to know that your corpsman saved your life. And so what happened was two of my arteries were seven. Your body has about 10 units of blood in it. Yeah. Uh, And in the initial surgery, they gave me 17 units of blood to keep me alive to because they couldn't control the bleeding. I had compartment syndrome, so they had to give me a fasciotomy. Basically, all the compartments in my leg were basically sealing themselves off, going in self-preservation yeah. mode. They cut open every compartment of my leg. They opened me up. They realized there was massive trauma with the, every major component of my leg was destroyed. Vascular, skeletal, muscular, nervous system, venous. Um, but they debated around the table to take my leg off or keep it, and thankfully they kept it. So mm-hmm. that was my first surgery. I had another major surgery a couple hours later. Because I had bled out again, um, and then I eventually made my way back to Germany, then back up here to Bethesda, where I spent nine weeks mm-hmm. at uh, National Naval Medical Center. And so, t- tell us about your road to recovery. I mean, what what has that journey been like? It was very challenging. So, the, during the course of two years, I had eleven surgery. The, the there were several key ones. One of the key ones was after nine weeks of being in Bethesda. I was in unbelievable pain mm-hmm. every day. They could not control it. They were giving me epidurals, bol- uh, surgical boluses, soon epidural on my back, rupivacaine, bupivacaine, stuff that should have knocked me out for 8 to 10, 12 hours. Within a matter of two hours, I was going from a 0 to a 10 in pain. Yeah. And I was at the point, I lost it one day. I was sitting in my chair. I just told them to cut my leg off. I could not deal with it anymore. My wife is, is, is eight months pregnant at the time, mm-hmm. and so she's trying to deal with me, which isn't to do on a normal day when she's not pregnant. Um. <laughs> And I was in so much pain. So I had an awesome surgical team there. And my plastic surgeon by the name of, uh, he's, a, he's a plastic surgeon by the name of uh, 
Dr. Howard, and he opened me up in late April, about seven weeks after I was shot, and I've got some great photos of it, but my uh, tibial nerve, nine centimeters were gone, literally gone, nothing there. Literally gone. And so that right there should have necessitated the the, the um, amputation of my leg, mm-hmm. but thank God he was there, and he decided to take the tibial nerve from a cadaver, multiple tibial nerves, created like a triple helix, and he wound them together, and he connected wow. the top end really? to the bottom end of my tibial nerve, and he put like a cellophane sheath over it and a wound vac, and he sewed me up. And he said, let's see if this takes. And, man, it was extremely painful. I had no feeling or flexation mm-hmm. in my foot for months, and then I was sitting in my chair at home. I was immobile for months at a time. And I was sitting there in late September, October, I have to check my journal. And for the first time, I was sitting there, and I could move my toes. And I told my wife, I said, Andrea, come here, look at this. I can move my toes. Yeah. And so that really began the road to recovery. I knew right then, uh, I don't want to make this too long, but so the couple months later, my sure. leg was twisted and torqued and bent because originally they put a plate on my, on, the, on my leg and my tibia. That plate failed because I was doing probably too much physical therapy. When they initially connected my leg, it wasn't properly aligned. And okay. so it failed. So I was going to have it amputated again. I went to Portsmouth, and I found this this uh, wizard, mad scientist, <laughs> orthopedic surgeon, uh, Robert Gaines. Weird guy, phenomenal surgeon. I'm so grateful I met him. Yeah. And he told me within five minutes, oh, don't worry about it. Here's your three options. Let's choose this one. So I came back. He sawed my leg totally in half, my tibia and fibula totally in half. Um, it was it's called an osteotomy. Remarkable surgery. He twisted my right, my lower leg around 25 degrees, upper leg. He lined everything up, put a nail on the length of my tibia, put in six screws, and um, that was the that was, uh, that was saved my leg. And then I had one major surgery after that when I they fused all the toes of my right leg straight mm-hmm. because we get something called hammer toe, claw toe, whatever when you lose your tibial nerve. And so my toes don't bend in my foot, but uh, that allowed me to further recover. Got off all my pain meds 18 months after I was shot. I got back to full duty. I worked this whole time as much as possible. Got back to full duty 24 months after I was shot, and then I deployed right back to Afghanistan in May of 2012. And crazy story is, when I left Afghanistan, I was very in a drug-induced state. Uh And I was on a stretcher and a lot of pain, and I didn't know where I was at. When I flew back to Afghanistan, it was in late May of 2012, two years later, and I landed on this airfield, and I walked out of the ramp of this C-17, mm-hmm. and immediately, you know, tears came to my eyes because, like, I'd been here before, really? and I literally flew back into the exact same location I flew had flown out of in Bagram Airfield. Is that right? Wow. And that day, I visited the room I was in the night before I left, and, you know, obviously broke down in tears. And Sure. Thank the Lord for his provision for, for saving my life and for all the doctors that worked on me for the two years previously. Mm-hmm. But it really came kind of full circle at that right. moment. It's, right. I mean, it's, it was incredible to go back there, and Bagram's a beautiful place. That's what I've heard from other folks who have been deployed there. If it was any other place in the world, it'd be a, it would be a vacation uh, mecca because of the awesome mount- hiking, si- uh, skiing, sailing, windsurfing, mountain biking, road cycling. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a beautiful place. And I knew that's how I knew because the mountain peaks were still there. They were the peaks were covered in snow. I could see them. I met was medevaced in March, so I, it was snowy and cold there. Yeah. So it was a very emotional couple hours for me. Then I was you know, it was interesting because I was stationed there through the duration of my pl- duration of my deployment. I had the opportunity to go visit with dozens of 
combat wounded soldiers, airmen, Marines going mm-hmm. through that same aid station that I had been medevaced out two years prior. Yeah. And they didn't know who I was, but I could sympathize with their pain and what they were about to go through. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure at that moment, too, it was probably helpful to have someone who'd experienced such trauma. Right. You know, to be in, in with them and say, you know, you can get through this. You know, right. If I did, I mean, I, you had your leg rebuilt right. several times, and then you're, you're back on deployment. Exactly. Um, and so, it, obviously, you would have awarded a Purple Heart, and you're here to speak at uh, Mount Vernon on Purple Heart Day. And so, can you tell us what what that citation means to you? Right. You know, you know, the Purple Heart, I don't want to go into the whole history of it. Obviously, it was originally, the original origination, it was the military, uh, Order of Military Merit by George Washington mm-hmm. during the American Revolution. Then it kind of went away for hundreds of years until 17, or 1932. Right when it was brought back by Douglas MacArthur, and then there were stipulations on who would receive it. And then after, or right around the World War II time frame, it was solely for those wounded in combat. And it's changed variations since then. And so it's the only medal that has, you know, has George Washington's silhouette on it, which mm-hmm. is pretty awesome. And the fact that I'm a member here at Mount Vernon, and I've visited Mount Vernon, you know, it's kind of, people don't think I'm weird, but I visit here like 40 times <laughs> at least in the last year. And I read uh, as much as I possibly can on George Washington and Mount Vernon, you know, it's, I would say it's it's quite the honor to wear him on my chest, wear the, fa- sure. the father of our country on my chest. But, you know, it's something that you never want. You don't want to believe me. I would do anything possible to go back in time and not get shot and injured um, because of, you know, living pain on a daily basis, yeah. the adverse effects of it. But at the same time, I'm extremely grateful that I'm not one of the 1.5 million who've, Americans who have been killed in combat since the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. And I'm also very grateful and humbled that I'm not worse off than I am. There are tens of thousands of people that are worse or more injured than I am. I am one of my Marines. It's a double amputee, lives in the Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. area. And I think about him all of the, all of the time. Uh, his name is Michael Martinez. Mm-hmm. He lost his legs shortly after I was shot. And so we actually were spent a lot of time together at Bethesda. And anytime I want to feel sorry for myself or think about, you know, the pain I'm in, I think about the fact that well, at least I have my legs and Michael does not. So I need to do everything possible to honor his sacrifice, sure. to live in my life to the fullest extent. And that can be said for any countless Marines that I know that are, that are wounded. And so I try to take advantage of every opportunity. And, and as you take advantage of those opportunities, and you know, you're speaking here shortly, and as you said, you, you, you spoke to other Marines and, and servicemen who had been injured in combat I, I'm curious to know what re- resources you might recommend to folks who are either struggling physically or, or mentally with, you know, the combat trauma. You know, what um, what would you say to them over the air that would help them recover or heal if they feel like, you know, they're alone or something like that? Right. So that's a great question. And I have my personal um, opinion, John, and recommendations. So how do you gain resiliency, basically, mm-hmm. before or after combat? And obviously reading about it, History and reading about combat is essential because you realize, first of all, you're not you're not just the only one that's been injured. There's it's the history of warfare. Sure, millions have been killed or injured traumatically in warfare, but there's also millions of examples of people that have overcome their injuries and le- led very productive lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I re- in the Civil War. Look at Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the hero of the you know Twentieth Maine, idolized in the movie Gettysburg and right. countless Gettysburg books. He was wounded, I think, seven times, including one time that went through his hips and through his bladder. Imagine the pain associated with that. Yeah. And he lived a very productive life after the Civil War in Maine, Bowdoin College. He taught everything at Bowdoin, and I think he was the president. So for me personally, 
the absolute foundation of resiliency is my faith. You know, I grew up in a, in a just like many of our founding fathers, in a, in a with a Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. ethics, norms, background, uh, and my faith has sustained me through very challenging times. Uh, second of all, is my family. I've got a phenomenal wife, Andrea. I've got mm-hmm. four awesome girls, um, and to have them by my side and support me through very challenging times. I mean, my wife. Imagine this. My wife. When I was injured, my wife, we had two girls at home that were under the age of four, and she was pregnant. She soon had our third daughter the month after I got out of the hospital, and I was incapacitated in a chair for 10 months. And my wife took care of all of us. Without her, I'm sure things would be much different. So my faith, my family, the third thing was, you know, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a family where I didn't have many vices, so I've never drank alcohol my entire life, never mm-hmm. done drugs, never had any kind of those, those mind-altering drugs that will really destroy somebody during periods of mental or physical trauma. Yeah. And so I was very fortunate. I know so many people that through hardships, they get addicted to drugs and alcohol. And alcohol is the absolute worst possible debilitating drug that we deal with in the military, and it's horrible. And so many people's lives and marriages are destroyed as a result of it. And I was very fortunate not to to partake of it. And the last thing I would say is a purpose in life. You know, we Mm -hmm. only live one time. And the more you study warfare, the more you realize that, you know, we're not guaranteed a long life. Absolutely. And so we got to find a daily purpose in life. And what is that purpose? And then you got to find ways to enact that purpose. You know, one of the things I found through this was cycling, was riding a bicycle. So after my surgery that Dr. Gaines performed, when he sawed my leg in half, he said, you start riding a bike. And so I started with, and I went to my physical therapist. Uh, <laughs> I used to go at six in the morning to beat other people there. And my physical therapist would get there early. Her name was Susan. And um, I remember the first time I jumped on a trainer, on an uh, indoor cycling trainer. And I pedaled for about 30 seconds and I started to get tear-eyed because it hurt so bad. And she was crying. I mean, her husband's a Marine. Yeah. I had her crying because it was hurting, but I was like, I need to do this. And so within a matter of weeks, I was riding for several minutes. Then I did my first outdoor ride a month later, 13 miles during the Tour de France. It was during July. I remember that because I was like, this is amazing. First exercise I had in a year and a half. And that started the path of the purpose in life, you know, cycling. And yeah. so since that time, I've ridden uh, over 57,000 miles on my, really? on my Trek bicycles. Oh my my Trek Madone just crossed over uh, 38,000 miles in my Trek Checkpoint gravel bike has over 10,000 miles on it, and I do long ultra-endurance gravel races uh, that are up to you know, 150, 200, 350 miles. Wow. But it gives me a purpose in life, focus, and it also allows me to demonstrate to other injured military service members that you don't need to be the victim. You can overcome these injuries mm-hmm. and perform to, at a very high level. I mean, I'm, I'm, the world of cycling is extremely humbling because the competition level is extreme, amazing athletes, but at the same time, I'm fairly competitive in when I participate, um, but I try to be an example to others saying that you, you, mm-hmm. you can overcome anything that the world throws at you. Well, I, mean, I think we certainly look forward to seeing you continue on this path and inspiring others, and you know, I think it's probably just appropriate to close here to say you know, thank you very much for your service, and thanks for whatever you're doing to help you know, those veterans who are struggling out there. Uh, and going forward. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to close on a quote, and I like to, you know, you can go Founders Online, you can read yeah. the journals of all of our founding fathers for free. Right. And it's incredible. It's an easy to search anything you want to search about George Washington. 
So I spent hours looking through his journal, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, mm-hmm. and I was flipping through there a couple of weeks ago, and I read a letter that his nephew, George Steptoe Washington, had written to George when George, in 1795, December 1790, George Washington was first term as president right. up in Philadelphia. He obviously was very concerned about young people in his life because he didn't have any uh, biological sons of his own. His, his uh, son and his... Um, what do you call it? His stepson was killed outside of Yorktown, uh-huh. Jackie. Yeah. One of his his uh, favorite nephew died of disease. So he was always very concerned about passing down his traits, his character to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And his nephew, 19-year-old George Steptoe Washington, wrote him from what is now West Virginia. And he was asking about his assistant. He wanted to go to Philadelphia to go to college and to basically receive room and board, I believe, and some sort of payment to go to college there. And George was... President Washington was mentoring his 19-year-old nephew. And it's a great letter. You can read it on Founders Online on 5 December. And in this letter, he writes this, and I'm going to use this as a challenge to anybody that's listening. You know, he says this, As the time is limited, that every hour misspent is lost forever, and that future years cannot compensate for lost days at this point in your life. And so it kind of goes back to taking advantage of every minute we have. Yeah. And being living productive lives, so we can advance this great thing that uh, George Washington, the founding fathers, established in the 1700s. Well, that's our challenge, and so let's get to it. Thank you, sir. Absolutely appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Our producer and sound engineer for this episode was Mason Shelby. Our theme music, entitled Mount Vernon, was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. To support this podcast, as well as other research here at Mount Vernon, consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on our webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. See you next time.